Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hi everybody, I'm Maria Chikudi and on behalf of ACME, I'd like to welcome all to today's talk, Art After Machines, which is co-presented with Deakin University and Paws Festival. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. Telecomputation, which the transfer of information across a network, holds many ramifications for art, and various artists and curators have embraced or resisted its influence. Curator Mohamed Salami examines the rise of data transference in curatorial practice and the consequences of cultural automation in contemporary and future art. Salami examines the impact of telecomputation and the effects of of its synthesis with human knowledge. The process is both changing what it means to experience human consciousness and the place of art in the world of creativity. Mohamed Salemi is an independent curator based in Vancouver. He holds an MA in critical and curatorial studies from the University of British Columbia. Originally from Iran, he received a curatorial grant from the Canada Council in 2012 and has curated exhibitions for the Morris and Hallen Balkan Gallery, Corner Gallery, Satellite Gallery, AMS Art Gallery and Dada Space. You can explore related images and themes in Muhammad's talk at Transduction, a pop-up exhibition at Pause Festival Tech Bar at Beard Deluxe from 9pm tonight. Please join me in welcoming Muhammad Salemi. Hello and thank you everyone for coming here and thank you Renata for inviting me to be part of this great festival. Since the introduction already included the, the abstract and the title of the talk, I'm going to go straight into it. And for those who were in Sydney and witnessed my um, keynote talk at the Aesthetic After Finitude Conference held at the University of, University of New South Wales, you might feel a little bit of deja vu happening in your mind, but, but it's just normal. Unlike the modern age, when scientific and artistic authorities, or in other words, the concepts and practices associated with objectivity and subjectivity, were carried out by humans and typically embodied in concrete artifacts, today, the materiality of human knowledge and experience, meaning the credibility of its past, the reality of its present, and the probability of its future are determined to a great extent by the gathering and sharing, as well as algorithmic processing and visualization of data into information and information into knowledge. Pushing network computers beyond the living archive that feeds into a form of computational empiricism, algorithms are actually increasingly involved in more than just capturing, sorting, and parsing data. 
they have begun to take part in the process of thinking, deciding, rulemaking, and rule enforcement activities long conceived to be in the exclusive domain of humans. The emergence of this new integrated space and engine of navigation and productivity is enabling a new kind of collaborative production of knowledge by a large number of humans and machines. This new space of productivity is expanding and revising its own outlines through persistent and collective human-machine interaction, blurring the lines between what it is to be a human and or a machine. This gradual symbiosis of humans and technology is swallowing everything, leaving behind nothing but two separate skeomorphic empty shells we call the individual and technology, only to be misrecognized by our sense perception as two separate things. This misrecognition keeps fueling our needless anxiety about the possibility of the integration of humans and machines or the emergence of artificial intelligence, which actually already has taken place and must indeed be situated in the past. Every day, it is becoming more clear that not only we are already one with our machines, but that perhaps it is possible to scientifically and functionally think of humans and nature as complex machines themselves. The integration of these two complex systems, meaning the natural world and the human-made technologies via the medium of cybernetics, is essentially also uniting object, the categories of object and subject, thought and image, as well as depth and surface, eventually rendering obsolete the need for such categories as culture, nature, and perhaps even science, philosophy, and art. While the consequences of the cybernetic age for planetary life is being somewhat addressed in specific fields, the ramifications of the mass redistribution of labor between humans and machines and the symbiosis of nature and technology has yet to be properly reflected upon. Meanwhile, even less is being said about what the implications of these tectonic shifts are for the future of art. Defining the relationship of art to technology has never been an easy task often resulting either in their conflation or their imaginary opposition. Of course, art is a form of technology, but one in which the physical and semantic resources of the tool are mobilized to reinforce the being of the humans in opposition to both nature and machines. Art, up until our time, has essentially functioned as a human technology. It utilizes non-human means and machines in order to reflect on the human condition as a center from which the universe can be evaluated. A sort of human veneration machine that even when it's questioning anthropocentrism and anthropomorphism, it perpetuates the existence of the distinct category called humans. Meanwhile, the technological transformations of the last few decades and the consequences are starting to threaten this exclusive human conscious and embodied experience of the world, which functions concretely through our relationship with the world of appearances in general and with art as its pinnacle. While the new age of cybernetics has more or less failed to mean much to art, the explosion of network digital and algorithmic knowledge has actually begun to slowly erode art's place, not only in the larger context of social life, but even in art's historically secure position as the oracle of all creativity. What sets our contemporary condition apart from the past is how various human-centered or mediated epistemologies are not just shifting, but declining and giving way to a new paradigm in which 
Not only images and art, but also the whole physical universe can potentially be approached and understood as functions or processes which are invisible to human perception. Today, not only science, but even art and culture can be measured, studied, even judged with little physical and no metaphysical connections to humanity's understanding of the world, which often is based solely on the meaning and implications drawn from a needless sophistication of human sense perception and historical experience. Because the enabling condition for art's existence, historically being the exceptionality of humans and their exclusive right to observing and understanding the world, the synthesis of humans and machines brings with it a profound identity crisis which can only be addressed through a return to the drawing board and a beginning from zero. Now, I just want to tell you a story here, which I really wanted to also like bring it up earlier on, but I couldn't in Sydney because of the sh time shortage. Uh, in 2010, I was teaching an art history course at University of British Columbia. It was a seminar, a small seminar. And one of the assignments that we had for the students was to um, fictionalize an artist and give, give that artist a biography, uh, a CV, and a, and a career and all sorts of bibliographies. And the students were broken up into groups. It was a third year seminar undergrad. And this group of students, the, a, a group of my students headed by this fellow who was actually only doing an elective in art and he was actually studying physics. They presented a, a, a compelling story which sort of like, almost like pushed me in the direction I, I am now which was, the story was that, was in year like 2050 or something, they, the scientists at MIT had created this supercomputer that was supposed to sort of like be the best artist of the world and be even better than humans. And then they had fed this machine all human knowledge in order for it to create an exhibition. And then millions of dollars of government funding had gone into this project to make this incredible like machine be able to produce art. And then at the end of the day, when the art was produced, it was just like minimalist like field paintings of black, gray, and white. And it became this huge controversy. Right-wing people were like, why are we putting money into this kind of stuff? We have to cut art funding. And then it was a whole like thing. And then they, they basically like, the, the, and then the, the people responsible quickly said, oh, sorry, this must have been a mistake. Of course, art is a human thing. We should have not done this. And they basically dismantled the computer. They decided to dismantle the computer and abandon the project and, and a big public apology. And then as they were dismantling the machine and destroying it, one of the technicians in MIT kind of like was able to, he sort of like discovered that the machine had created a sort of like a secret reformatted area of the hard drive for its own work and research. And while it was feeding this kind of like what it expected the art world wanted to see, it was actually doing a, an extensive research on sort of like bird robotics. It was, the machine was obsessed with birds and the, and the fact that there are beings out there that can actually fly. And it was like journal entries about like being like depressed and, and like, blind in darkness and these beings that can just go everywhere and look at the world and all these beautiful paintings and objects and stuff but also sort of like so they realized that the machine was really close into like figuring out 
the robotics of flying for machines. And then, but it was too late, and they had destroyed the project. There was only remnants and little particles of this amazing thing left. And then they realized that they shouldn't have really like destroyed the machine, but it was too late. So that was just like. Um, So now this is sort of like the, the, the drawing board and the beginning from the zero, which we sort of like we were at with, with, uh, in regards to the paper. For art to make sense after the machine, it needs to be something other than what it has been. And the place to rebuild a new art is as much the world of thought as it is the human artist studio. So in this respect, I'll begin with a text which I have been constructing out of several conversations I've had with a group of artists and philosophers in relation to what it means to make and exhibit art in the future. If we begin by the assumption that art has always existed, and what we are trying to do is to explain it, then of course we have to create a concept of art that fits the set of existing artworks. But if we begin by developing a concept of art as a condition to understand whether a new kind of art exists or is possible, then we could very well simply find out that today much of what is taken to be art simply isn't. If we are to hang on to anything that might be called or resemble art, our efforts have to be part of how we come to understand not only what art is, but what art does and what it is ought to do. We must remember that there is always a pendular movement between art's impact on knowledge, or in other words, its capacity to make knowledge cognizable, and both the theoretical and aesthetic blindness of sciences, which supposedly produce knowledge. Art, if considered as a rationality that has a particular way of accessing and manipulating the outer forms and materials, is then a type of technology in relation to the solutions for our epistemological shortcomings for which science has no patience. Art must function for both the human and machine side of our being as the membranes between these two seemingly separate but at the same time integrated entities, the interface that makes human available to machines and machines available to humans, a kind of symbolic semantic structure that it, in the absence of direct mind and machine integration relates the historical significance of our culture to its future function via the technologized being. Solutions to the problem of human-centered art are strictly non-trivial like removing subjective and therefore diverse interpretation or experience of art as its condition or tell us, can collapse the entire edifice of art paradigm. However, the problem of the existing human-centered art is not just with its interpretation, but also with the relaxation of epistemic standards for adju adjudication of its value, and more so, the function of art through which the value of an artistic proposal is gauged only relatively to the artistic act with which it is aff affirmed. Therefore, the arts problem cannot be solved only at the level of viewing and interpreting, because the conceptual import of interpreting practices aren't something that would merely follow correlationally from the viewer's confrontation with the produced work of art, but also must involve in the kind of thinking that would make a work of art possible in the first place. At the level of production, the artist be it a human or a machine, not only utilizes techniques in the larger sense of the term, but also enough fidelity to maintain certain assumptions in order to organize the functional hierarchies of the work. While predicting 
how a cognitive manifold generates assumptions about the work's metaphysics and its availability to the viewer. This type of work, as far as the machine side of it is concerned, is not much different than how algorithmic high-speed trading works. More complicated, but along the same lines. This is why human creation does not have value by itself. To simply say, any act of creative affirmation by humans is good in itself is precisely what allows the relativist everything is art to never self-exhaust. Making art must involve responding to the problem of enablement. How does making works of art enable one to think? Art production cannot be merely formal play. If this was the case, we could always frame whatever that is being produced by humans or by machines as art. Formalization and formal entities, as Ben Woodard, who's actually in the crowd tonight, reminds us earlier on, is actually the fidelity in one's ability to work with constraints set by genres, far more than it is about pure play and experimentation. If anything, the formation of art, rather than being playful in relation to form, needs to be approached as a strategy of both gaming the cognosensible surface of the work as well as that of the viewership. The idea of having conceptual and rational demands from art is simply to say that whatever value artworks can be taken to have cannot simply reside in a conceptually indeterminate notion of interpretation totally on the side of the subjective act of viewing without concerning the productive intention of the maker, which must always be worn like an identity tag by art on a sleeve. This is a fine balance, of course, to make the function of the work executable on the level of the surface without succumbing to correlational anthropal trap loops. On the level of consumption, or what I just said, like viewership, the social aspect of art operates according to certain normative limitations. While art is produced according to the constraints set by spatial and material limitations, which inform its appearance. These physical constraints neither equate but nor function differently than the normative social context of art. So on one side, I'm, I'm talking about the social context and then the real material physical constraints set by what we can make in the studio, right? And these two, even though are not the same kind, but they kind of push the art together and they form it. One side, say, like on the side of the viewership, and one side, the maker who's making this, making the work. This is why the art part of the art happens in an operation that crisscrosses both the material level of production and the social normative production in order for art to reasonably assert its new rules, or as others might want to say, have any meaning. Exiting the existing art should also mean abandoning the ontological status of the artwork as a sacred and collectible object. The dis dissatisfaction is that there is almost nothing new left to say or do, yet art just habitually assumes, like religion or politics, its monopoly on certain kinds of social value and function. In this regard, there is also a fundamental distinction to be made between two senses of art. The general sense, which includes all human activities aimed at something like beauty or unconditional value, including all various mediums and their historical assertions like sculpture, painting, installation, but also literature, cinema, 
video games, design. So one side is this general sense of all art, and then the more specific sense of art that identifies a practice that will be opposed to something like literature, perhaps as the creation and cultivation of certain site-specific encounters that usually is associated with gallery form and the various attempts to also kind of break out of it, like land art or like uh, uh, relational aesthetics or all sorts of stuff that tries to sort of like, it still plays the game, but it pretends that it's like breaking out of it. When most people talk about the definition of art, they're talking about the latter, meaning the gallery-based art, or, or like fine art or like contemporary art. The limited definition of art as that which is visual and based in galleries and museums, of course, has got little more than historical inertia holding together the actual practice of art, which is why it invites the relativist wisdom of curators and critics, since it presumes to articulate a motley of practices that seem radically variegated in content, but secretly joined in where things really count. The definition that privileges this optical effects of the art surface, despite being newer, essentializes the historical incident of modern art through museology and photography, these two amazing 19th century technologies. It projects itself in the mirror of history to then bounce back and legitimize itself as what we call art today and art history. So it's like Basically, what I'm trying to say is a little bit complicated, so I'm, I'm going to take, a, take three seconds to explain it. It's like what we consider art history was basically came to be around the same time that modern art was being formed, like late 19th century, right? So basically, it's like the idea of modern art that actually goes back and defines what was art history and come forth. And then through this process, it legitimizes itself by establishing this sort of like background to itself, right? If you go to like the Met or museums, you, you notice a lot of emphasis is usually on like the way sort of like El Greco or other painters who, whose work can be seen relate to abstraction because this back and forth thing always sort of involves, so like what is relevant to now? There's something of the laboratory to the gallery that then imbues work of art with a meta quality of occurring in these sort of secular cathedrals that then gets confused with what is identified as the general qualities of general art, which means those other mediums and other practices, and lays claims to them. Whereas the attempt to understand the latter through the lens of the former ends up raising the question of how there is this unifying quality in lieu of that sort of white cube-based abstraction. That's not to say we couldn't work out a better definition but in many ways, this historical inertia in the 20th century onwards is constituted by the practice's own obsession with its own definition and with transgressing it towards no other goal other than the idea of transgression, which combined with the postmodern obsession with difference, diversity, multiplicity, causes nothing but what Sohail Malik calls the indeterminacy of contemporary art. That is what has reduced art practice to the redundancy of affirmative creation when the transgression of any definition becomes a singular obsession. You soon are led to the idea that the only rule is to impose your own will over any set constraint. So that in the end, art is supposed to be understood as an abrupt intervention whose authority and value is endowed directly from its creation. 
although it is in fact indexed to its occurring within the confines of this very particular history of practice and practice of history. Does this circular redundancy leaves us with the horror of trying to come up with a new identity for art to continue to unite these non-visual types of activity with the visual ones? Or would it be more fruitful to disentangle them, save them from visual arts, and leave them on their own? Since unifying them also ends up leading to a sense of exclusivity that still separates them out from the sciences, scientific and philosophical knowledge, missing their continuity or at least links with whatever other sort of activity there are. As an important injunction, we have to avoid the vulgar equation between art and science, like the plague. Today's art has no direct epistemic effect, or if it does, it is very contingent. Despite its grant money producing claims, the art of today is not about a direct production of knowledge. The only way to recuperate visual art is through preventing it from masquerading as the representative of the all other arts or forms of creativity, including design. I think the naivety of the machinic art can be very helpful in this regard. Visual art, as it operates today, has to be understood in terms of its status as a species of some wider genus and should not be allowed to index itself to some historical singularity consisting of constant ontological evolution by art professionals via the ritual of definition refusal. Yes, of course, in a limited sense, a contemporary art installation can provide an experience which triggers a particular reflection so it can be engineered to maybe produce certain beliefs or assert certain social norms. But this already sounds quite depressing in 20th century. Art should really not be about the production of this kind of engineered knowledge, but the discontinuity of the art of knowledge from the knowledge of art. This can certainly be cons conserved, this, this discontinuity can be conserved in a higher category of navigation between art and knowledge in a stereoscopic image, much like the scientific and manifest image. Art needs to be understood in terms of its intended and unintended cognitive role, and even perhaps its contingent socio-cognitive role. Therefore, it can be integrated with what Reza Negarestani's navigational paradigm of knowledge has called for. And not from the conceptually dead-end produced, uh, conceptually dead-end angles produced by artists who try to justify the value of, of art by comparing it to the use value of science in terms of the production of a special kind of general philosophical knowledge as a path that leads nowhere but down the enchanting humanist romanticism stream. We also ought to have a deflationary attitude towards what knowledge itself is. So not just art, but our idea of knowledge also needs to be sort of like downgraded a little bit. And why it is valued, rather than saying art produces no knowledge whatsoever. As long as we understand that art produces no objective knowledge, we can understand how its cognitive trajectory is not the kind of interrogation carried forth by natural sciences. Of course, some artistic practices want to claim to be doing the labor of social sciences, for that matter, by using the results of these types of knowledge productions in their own. Artist as art historian, artist as historian, artist as archivist, artist as social scientist, artist as anthropologist, etc. However, if we don't take knowledge as the key term, but recognize beauty or a dialectical game involving some kind of a plus or minus symmetry, 
uh, interplay between symmetry and proportion as, some kind, as, th as they relate to the surface, then there is a different line of compatibility and a form of science available to art that really sciences, like we said, have not been allowed to and will not be concerned with. Thus, as far as aesthetics are concerned, an objective knowledge of surface effects is produced by art to different degrees. This shallowing of art is needed if we want our machines to enter its waters and learn how to swim. Think the look and feel of fictional worlds and the aesthetics of social insights and interaction, areas in which machines have been as active as humans for as long as we remember. But even then, art should not be understood simply as that which directly produces this sort of quasi-useful knowledge. Instead, what art can do is to facilitate access to knowledge for both humans and machines. This does not mean that, for example, by providing a photographic record, one can present social issues, or an installation can help us better understand proportion. But that in a higher level, art can provide us with modes of knowledge compression in the form of form. A good metaphor for this is the QR code, or the good old barcode. Spatial temporal limitations are not always limitations. Optical and audio effects between the cosmos, habitats, and the living organisms have always been wireless and quite effective in aiding life in moving along its path. However, this compressive role of art must essentially be understood in terms of its role in cognitive processes and not elevated as the production of a special kind of supercognitive luxury product. With its indirect and silent method of speaking, art can help us understand the subtle differences between the categories of insight and knowledge. This way, art, like good philosophy, is no longer the knowledge of something, but knowledge of how to do something. The end of an artwork, then, can be to help cement a functional cognitive product more than producing a belief in the viewer. The artwork itself is not the knowledge but it can be the medium to produce knowledge. Art, either as an object or a process, can at the end be a facilitator of the process of knowledge production and not the product of that knowledge, an ability rather than a belief, the ability to conceive and move rather than adherence to or the endorsement of a conception. Hence, art can be vaguely considered a type of philosophical modeling and navigation, the ability to comport intelligence be it machinic or human, or both in different ways through the material capacity of the object or the temporal dimensions of the making and showing of art in the realm of social. The idea of art as insight and navigation rather than knowledge and belief might also be thought of as the art of epistemic orientation. Therefore, what is correct to say is not that art is not involved in the production of knowledge, but rather that the production of knowledge is not what constitutes an artwork as an artwork. Even as a thing of beauty, art has a cognitive role and should not be thought of as a cognitive product, which, again, does suggest a continuity and not interchangeability with science. In a way, only the artwork that incidentally produces direct knowledge is good work of art and that true art can't be good or even produce knowledge if that's its direct aim. On the other hand, a scientific theory can be artistic, but it can be good scientific theory if being artistic is what it aims to do. A lot of like, you, you see a lot of like claims like that being made, right? Both in social sciences too. It's really 
It's really a form of aesthetic investigation, but passed through the peer review as a form of science. The bad end of either of these two, like bad art or bad knowledge or bad science, sorry, is either it's a spectrum that begins with nonsense and ends in propaganda. In this regard, art's position then is similar to philosophy. It operates like an enabling condition for the production of knowledge. But since art isn't just a work of art or the object which produces the effect, and since, as we outlined earlier, it is also shaped by a set of normative social practices, thus art's infatuation with its own changing definition is extremely tied to its indeterminate subjective effects among any number of potential viewers. But this is hardly the result of how, this is, like, this is an argument against those who say it's the social normative side that produces the indeterminacy, right? But what I'm trying to say is that the social normative side itself is not automatically leads to indeterminacy of art. The sociability of art is less responsible for this kind of effect than its material production by the artist for this ineffective indeterminacy. The future art can synchronize its material normative commitments with commitments in the social domain and so begin to render concrete and determinate judgments upon art, effectuating its history once more. This is how the sociability of art can actually become once again a kind of knowledge of art that presses forward rather than being stuck in mere indeterminate whimsy. So the very same social normative dimension of art, which it seems is part of like, oh, audience, every person can interpret it their own way, can be refashioned in a way that actually can set limits on, on, on the meaning of artwork and actually kind of like bring some coherence to what the art is actually trying to do. Rigorous art of tomorrow must be about bridging the gap between sciences and humanities on the humanities side of the divide. Specifically, I'm thinking of art as a deep science of the unity and interaction of the thought, imagination, and a natural constructed surfaces of the world. The artificiality and synthetic nature of the surface of art can precisely be aligned with the artificiality of pure thought. An open source and collectivity produce an, uh, an open source and collectively produced synthetic surface as the constitution of form, as an epistopolitical and constitutive mark of gesture. Consequently, art is not the production of knowledge, but the production of knowledge effects. We are modifying, ramifying the limits and possibilities of how we know that we know via the surface. But for any of this even begin to take place, first of all, the art of tomorrow needs to be freed from the shackles of the logic of the history of art, but particularly the thick short chain that leashes it to the logic of the history of modern art. And second, art needs to be freed from the from, art needs to be freed from slaving for free as a purveyor of meaning, which itself is a duty expected from art as a consequence of the logic of its modern history. This double liberation does not require the re-elaboration of the significance of art, and contrary, is a form of downgrading rather than elevation. These two conditions are needed if you're going to secularize art from its domination by humanity. This task must begin with asking ourselves a not so shallow question, which is, under what conditions visual art have historically become so important to, the West, to Western culture? Our question then will require us to rewrite the history of the rise of art significance 
in relation to the history of thought and philosophy in the West, giving our technologies their proper place in a narrative of art's life from the prehistoric age all the way to our time. However, art cannot be completely rid itself of meaning for a while until the emergence of a true atheism that not only negates God, but also the, negates the, the vitalizations of nature, vitalizations of human, the material universe, language, and finally, the machine itself. Until then, we have to try our best to ensure that artists, at least, aren't the ones intending direct meaning and producing it. Art's incision from its history and ontology is a particular separation, one that only loosens its ties to its human past so it can invent itself in the present towards its machinic future. By positing the truth in the future art, in, in, by positing the truth in the future, art can maintain its negative conditions of skepticism while at the same time focusing on the positive conditions of constructing new perspectives. Building a new purpose for art in the 21st century begins by downgrading art to a rigorous science of surface, as the smallest, like surface as the smallest component of what in aesthetic theory is referred to as form. What is form? if not the interaction and overlaying of multiple surfaces? What is form, if not the form which the multiplicity of surface effects place on the surface of our perception? Being the science of surface means art has to come to terms with its metaphysical deficit and be creative with its limited superficial resources. This rigorous science of surface is the essential component for the construction of the stereoscopic vision of art and science. It involves taking away art's metaphysical credit cards and forcing it to be resourceful with its own ontology. This is the first step in the long road for art to, to truly become the form of thought. Art also needs to become autonomous from science, but to do so, it has to be a master of its own domain. This strategy is not limiting art to just the local effects of its surface qualities, but a way of figuring out how this very locality both via interaction with inhuman sense perception, but also indirectly and through trickling down and infecting other surfaces of the built environment, like architecture and design, has a traction on the global unity of humanities and sciences. Art needs to be downgraded to its surface for the sake of revitalizing its surface so it can truly become the science of surface. While it is true that art is the forming of information on the surface, like a hard drive or monitor or any other support material. But unlike modernists, the essence of true art is not the limitations or the possibilities of its support material, like painting and canvas, or even, or even speaking through to its audience. Art doesn't need to worry about an audience. It must begin by knowing that it is the audiences that need art more than art needs them. As to why we need artworks to perform this task and why we shouldn't only examine the effects of particles and lights on a nanoscale and have computers work out how they could potentially interact and be useful, we ought to consider art as something which is no longer about the literality of surface effects for the human perspective system. We urgently need art because it can be reconfigured in a way to play a major role in the reconciliation of the human and the machine. We need art because it is only through art that we might be able to find a non-cybernetic system for re-establishing an inhuman ethical foundation for our future technologies. 
This is why this work cannot be automated and relocated exclusively to either humans or to machines. We ought to use art before our excessive humanism destroys the chance of the emergence of an ethical artificial intelligence to teach our machines how to make and understand art and how to come into being through this process. We need to show them how this process is crucial in the social proce process of machinic co-individuation, which is sort of like my term for if machines begin to understand how individuation work and if machines are going to be sort of like cultivated, this sort of like process of becoming like a singular individual in a social process. While art cannot be conceived only in terms of signal information, language, and rules, it should also not be legitimated strictly through its indeterminate and interpretive biophenomenological experience in a designated space called a museum or gallery. The future valence of art will depend on its modularity and adaptability to multiple platforms. For art to be shared with machines, it needs to leave the church of humans and become fully transmittable. Art ought to become the formation of the form of the void of meaning and folded in a cognitive wrapping paper and visible as a surface of cognition. The materialization of both the historical and semantic void of meaning, both as an assertion injected in a material world and as a series of verifiable claims just before they manage to quietly fill in this void or fill this void. Then there is the question of the artist versus artists or art as an isolated activity by a single individual versus collective art. We really need to throw the artist as his or her own special flower in the compost heap. The, the reverence around the absolute figure of the artist, which starts in the Renaissance, is a symbolic recognition of the place of humans in the world. Inhumanity must also do away with a singular figure of the artist. Art should be reconfigured to mean something produced by a collectivity of humans and machines. And contrary to science, which can be thought of as an imbalanced mediation or dialectics between what the world is and the, what the world ought to be in favor of the former, art needs to be thought of as the outer form or the surface of thought, a mediation between the empirical and the constructed in favor of the latter. Art making then ought to be conceived as the production of the surface of thought resulting from the idealized thought of the surface in favor of form and not thought. That's the problem with a lot of conceptual art. The last instance, they betray form. But, but in the interplay between thought and form, art should always take the side of form, form at the end because it's always at the end about what, what is going to be available for consumption on the viewer side. In the imbalance between what is art versus what art can and ought to be, true art always sides with the latter. Now, for the, for the last thought, if art history is the field concerned with thinking about an art theory, the field of thinking art, or even thinking as art, art making then ought to be reconfigured as thinking, thinking in form as surface. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mo, for that thought-provoking talk. Um, it's now my pleasure to introduce and invite Dr. John D. Keane to join us up here in conversation with Mohamed Salami. 
John D. Keane is an arts practitioner, critical thinker, and senior lecturer at Deakin University. Over the last 27 years, he has exhibited and performed in the USA, UK, Europe, and Australia. His research interests include embodiment and embodied cognition, the philosophy of perception, experimental architecture, research design, and practice-led research. Recent creative projects include the Reading, the Reading Room Exhibition, Collaborative Installation Performances, Tuning Fork, Shopfront, Tuning Fork, Drill Hall, and was in residence at the Sense Lab. He has published in a range of journals, including Interfaces, Ecological Psychology, and Janus Head, with book chapters and, sorry, in 2010, he co-organised an international online conference on the Arakawa engines and is co-editing a special issue of Inflections Journal. Just a quick piece of housekeeping from me. We're, we are recording this session, so when we open up for Q&A, can you please wait for a microphone before speaking? Um, I'll be hovering with them. Thanks. Please welcome Dr. Johnny King. Yeah, thank you. I think we could have done with a short deck everything I've ever done. Um, we should thank Mo for that fantastic and very generous. I mean, I've written so many pages, but I can't make sense. Of, I, can't, I can't recall the beginning of the talk. Can you recall the beginning of the talk? I think we should start with the, with the end of the talk, because it seemed like you went, in a, you went in a funny place. I thought you were going somewhere, and then you went somewhere else. And you seem to come back to this possibility of this, this idea of the form of thought, surfaces the form of thought. So let's, let's maybe start there. Um, because some of the things you're pointing to seem to indicate forming was a more interesting possibility than form. But you come back to this thing of, we, of coming back to the form. It seemed like an odd place to go. Why is that? Where did you come uh, back to form? Because I'm, I'm on the side of art. But, but if art is wanting to go towards the algorithmic and wants to free itself from, from you know, because art can become anything yes. it wants to, then why wouldn't it go entirely towards the operation and not need that the form is like an intolerable okay. conclusion? Maybe I have an answer for that. Yeah. Because, and I think I, I was trying to hint it in the paper that at the level of transmission, even between, even between two, two machines, I mean, you still have something called an interface. We don't have direct, we, we can't we can transmit this, this like operation without bringing it to a surface and then transmit it. So like, our, we, we're still working with, with our machines through sort of like symbolic, you know, folder, move it there, you know, like we don't have direct, there's no brain chips yet, right? So that's why, that's why form is still like very relevant here. So until then, I think we're always gonna be dealing with this question of like, how to bridge these two. Now these, that seem like on a, on a, on a met, met, metaphorical level, you have these, these doubles, right? On a metaphorical level, you have like human and the machine, but really they're metaphors for science and humanity. And machine being on the side of science and, and the human being on the side of humanities, right? So basically, the role of art or, or the artist is to sort of like be, be like bridging the two, but, but more building the bridge of it on the side of form, on the side of art. You know, like it's like a bridge being built. It's like two teams are working on it and they're going to meet in the middle. But, but, our, but our allegiance is to the art side. We know this is our turf. This is our field. So we, we have to, at the end of the day, this is the thing. 
it, 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 this side is all superficial and it's all arbitrary. It has to do with like the limitations of the human. The real stuff's happening over there. But for it to make sense, it has to come to this side and we know this side better. So at the end of the day, we have to work it on this side rather than on the other side. And that, that's, that, that, that's, the, that's the sort of like a problem with a lot of like idea-based art is that they, in the last instance, to use like that famous Althusser term, they betray the form and then they fall on that side. And I, I think it's better to sort of like know what's going on, but then end on this side. <laughs> um, betray the form and fall on that side, and that side is? The side of like thought, the side of right. thought. Thought that hasn't declared its form, right. Yeah. Or, or hasn't declared its form particularly in a, in, a, in a type of interface that we recognize as art. Of course, when you speak your thought or like when you write philosophy, it still comes in a kind of a form, right? But it's not a form you recognize as some kind of like artistic output or like available to not like, like non-linguistic non or like other forms that are more like considered artistic. I mean, it, it does seem when you're talking that you, you, you have a very particular idea of, of what art is. And it, it would seem to me that, you know, it, this deflation that you're speaking of has kind of happened to some extent so that so many different kinds of operations that happen in culture nowadays would very easily be called art or, or not art. So, it, but you do seem to be wanting to go after a particular a particular concept of art. So you're talking about a hist you know, historical one. Maybe you could define what you're thinking that, that might be that needs to be undone and taken away from the human and given into the, to the hands of the machine. I, th I think, I think the, the, the idea that you, that you just spoke of, that like, you know, you, you see the sort of like, these a type of like ready ready making of every human activity by bringing it into the field of art and calling it art you see it as a downgrading whereas i see that as a kind of expansion and and like art colonialism sort of like art looking for activities and saying like oh i can do that into art let's bring that into art to me that's not downgrading that's actually expansion so downgrading means kind of like getting rid of all these metaphysical claims and getting rid of all this like this like this like claims that that's art because I can write about it or I can bring it to the white cube and call it art. And then really getting into sort of like something like much smaller and a much smaller ontological baggage for art. You know, I was thinking more of uh, the absorption of art techniques back into the production of the everyday. So I wasn't thinking of a, a deflating as in the negative, but as, as the expansion where, you know, hacktivism, you know, it, deploys art techniques that might have been taken from a previous time and, and, and makes them available in a different way. So I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of that. So, but you're including that in your, in your yes. definition. Right, okay. um, you made a nice distinction between... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go, no. What, what, the, the sort of like the logic of modern art that I'm, I'm referring to really is like if this paper was longer, we would, we would talk about Greenberg. Right. And talk about avant-garde and kitsch. The kind of like... The kind of like operational sort of like system that it creates in that in that in that piece of writing which actually becomes what post-war American art how it operates right he kind of like hopes for the system and then he helps establish in the 50s mm -hmm. that kind of like basically is still even though people reject his kind of like modernism or like lots of aspects of what he considered good art and bad art uh, 
but the operational logic of art that art needs to rid itself of is 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 still the same. Which is, I mean, I can explain it in in few words if you don't mind. Yeah, and I think it's kind of important. Is that is that the masses will never like art because they just have bad taste and they're just like a machine, like they're like they're like almost like they're animals. They don't like art. They like they like pop art, pop pop culture. So they are. They're interested in their cinema and they're interested in their pop music. And then, and that's how ideology controls them. The state controls them. But then we can cultivate the love of good art or like high art among the one percenters and get them to like art because they also resent masses. So we tell, we tell them to like, yeah, leave them alone. We're going to give you your own culture that's exclusively yours. And then they will like, they will sponsor it and like it and cherish it because they consider, it, they consider it theirs from their point of view. But from our point of view, what we're doing is we're preserving good culture for the future of the revolution or for whenever social change happens. If, because if you don't do that, if all culture is like Hollywood, then in the time of the big change, there's no real good culture preserved. So his metaphor is like, is like high culture is like a, is like an infant, or no, not an infant, is like a, is like a, is in the belly of the beast. And he actually uses the word umbilical core of gold, right? So it's like connected to the upper class through this umbilical core of gold, preserved, waiting to be delivered in a time of like major social change, right? And that's sort of like how art operates and that's how it kind of separates itself, right? Whereas, whereas in, in human and a machine is already comes from photography and cinema. Mm. That's how, in my opinion, and my paper in Sydney had a lot to do with that. That is like the history of computers, one line of history of computer is photography and cinema as far as its interface is concerned, right? And that's how we kind of got, got so, so really it has to somehow like this, Sorry, this, this baby has to be delivered. So that, that's why it, it's sort of like it's downgrading in a way. This is also another aspect of downgrading. It's a bit of a funny you made this very nice distinction between, um, I think it was knowledge and navigation. No, sorry, insights and navigation versus knowledge and beliefs. And beliefs. Would you talk a little bit about maybe the differences between those? Because some people, like myself, might associate insight and knowledge quite closely. So how are you? How is it that you're teasing those out in this in this sense? Let me look for a good example because it's really it's really about that subtlety. Insight is like. Inside is just like a, it's, it's a little bit looser. It's sort of like a overall idea, you know? Whereas knowledge is more concrete and has to do with sort of like, it goes through a process that becomes knowledge, right? So insight is like, just, it's, just, it's just like less, less specific right. and more sort of like a overall and less committed. Whereas okay. knowledge is already like, it's like, it's like it, it has to go through a process of verification to actually become knowledge. Okay, because I mean, I would have thought insight would be something more like um, uh, this lovely phrase from Bergson, touching the face of things, you know, sort of like going, going into yeah. the world in such a sense, but it's not, it's not vague at all, it's quite specific, and, and I would have thought it, was, it, it is the production of, of new knowledge. So I would have thought that there, there is this kind of, I mean, pr procedural or if you want to say algorithmic, because I mean operational procedural ag algorithmic, there, there is this tendency in, in art, even in the bad art that you're talking about, that, that isn't after those kind of cynical 
umbilical ties to gold in the market, but, but it is after this kind of touching the, the face of things. So, it, you know, it does seem like what you're positing is a way out of this conundrum that's been set up, but it, it seems like there's already aspects of that evident in what, what people have been doing. I mean, oh, definitely, but the problem is that the, the indeterministic machine sucks it back into the system and makes it one of many. So that, that's really like, I mean, we can get into that aspect of the conversation, but the problem is not like that good art isn't happening or like, or like amazing practices are not taking place, but like the, 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 the art machine, by claiming to represent diversity, brings them in, and once it brings them in, it kind of like voids them of any kind of like value over mm -hmm. the other practices and puts them next to each other in sort of like in a space and makes the, the, the already confused audience not even understand that like this one is, could actually be better than that one because it's like, oh look, everything is next to each other. You have, you have work, like you have feminist work right next to Damien Hirst and everything can coexist. Whereas we know that those things actually are not compatible and they can't coexist. <laughs> And I gave a very crude answer, a crude example, but yeah. just to make the point. Yeah, yeah, very nice. Um, I mean, talk, talk to us more about, about your conception of machine, because I think it's an it's a expanded notion of machine. So it's not like the, the cyborgs that, you know, you know um, Haraway was talking about. I mean, you're, you're already enveloped in, and absorbed that, that idea. You're, you've moved beyond that. So um, I'm, I'm just wanting you to maybe talk a little more, because you you move very quickly through, it seems like it's both a literal and a metaphoric, metaphoric aspect of that. So if you would just talk a bit more about that. My entry into the whole question of, question of the machine and technology, actually, I never read Haraway before I read other stuff. Right. And I was kind of lucky maybe that way. Because I became interested in it, I basically, through reading some particular political, political economy writers who referred to a paragraph of text by Louis Mumford, I started reading Mumford's Technique and Civilization book. Mm -hmm. And then through that, I also got, I got interested in uh, Stiegler. Mm -hmm. So I come from like a different line, mm -hmm. which is sort of like Mumford and then Stiegler, but really, it's, if you want to put it uh, linearly, it's like, Mumford, and then it's uh, Simondon, and then it's Stiegler, right? And then I basically sort of like, it was like, it was like, and then when I met Reza and, and people, Reza Nagarestani and these people who are working with sort of like ideas of like the problems and limitations of like digital computation and like how to move beyond existing machines towards better machines, it was sort of like it went through that trajectory. So that's sort of like how I, how I enter. And, and if you want me to, to, to tell you that the, 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 the Montfort quote is that he, he talks about like how language is like one of the earliest forms of technology we develop and it's still the most sophisticated, more mm -hmm. complex form of technology that is better than anything else we've, we've ever designed. And of, of course he's writing in the 1920s, but I think that that claim still is like valid. So yeah, so it's in a sense like if you consider language technology, then you probably look at look at architecture and urban 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 environment as a form of form of machine, and then it just like it, either metaphorical or real. Right, but on one hand, I mean, not not to belabor the point, you, you are talking about um, art as a machine, but then you're talking about the actual production of machines that are computational processes that go beyond 
the human in a particular way. So let's just disentangle those for a moment. Let's talk about the computational machines uh, and the kind of value that you're seeing moving into that. I mean, the story about the student, there, there was a kind of a romance in that story, wasn't there? There's the secret knowledge, there's the, you know, that the, the machines have the same thoughts that we do. They have actually the same concerns and we've... Well, if you we've, feed them we've books, undumbed, what do you want them to... Them, right, so there are children in that regard, yes. okay. But, you know, I mean, the, there is that lovely experiment, I don't know, it was done maybe 15 or 20 years ago, of the, the computer chips and uh, the, the person, you know, reiterated a, a, a one set of simple instructions and allowed the computer chips to make their own hook up and they found that it was done in a way that people wouldn't have connected them, right? So that there is a there is a logic and intelligence that can come about through a particular informatics, yeah? So there is a machine culture that could evolve on its own. But I guess I'm curious then, you know, who who is the, the experience of those things, the, the machinic experience, the human experience, there, there is still an experience of that that is for humans. There's, there's still an experience of that that is not for humans. And I guess you're saying, you know, some of that experience isn't for humans and that's to be celebrated. But there is this, ac this notion of access to that, yeah? So where, where, does that, where does that come in in the transition? Where do, we, where do we access our experience of that transition? How does that fit into the movement to the machinic? Okay, I'm just gonna like I'm just gonna like qualify this like I like I said in the beginning of the paper. I I, I and, and we were talking about this even before before the before the event that like to me this this question of an independent independent machine developing developing on its own or 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 with our help is is redundant because it's it's as far as we we can we can think of this is going to be um, always a human machine thing. It's always going to be because this is an efficient way. Is an efficient way, you know, like w working working on independent machines who are like as smart as humans is 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 like waste of waste of resources because by combining by combining humans and machines you're gonna get a lot more for your for your lot more value for your bucks. Right. So for me, as far as like I can think of, we're gonna we, like rather than coming up with like 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 thoughtful robots like you see in sci-fi, we're gonna like like something's gonna emerge that involves lots of humans and lots of machines. But how we go, how this going to you know what I mean like that's why yeah. drone is kind of interesting right? right because because drone on its own it won't be able to do anything it's like what gives drone its capabilities or the guy who's sitting in the office right so it's a total combination of these two entities one person in the office one uh, one machine out there with like the latest searching and that's what gives its its like capabilities yeah, okay. I get you. so yep fantastic. Look, I think it would be important to open up. There's got to be some questions for people. Yes, one hand went up immediately. Hi, Mo. Uh, great talk. Thank you. Um, speaking of drone, I suppose, um, I wanted to ask about the interrelation between philosophy and art, or sorry, science and art, um, and, and raise an example that's emerging in the work of electroacoustic composers. Where, where physicists, like straight physicists, are making equations and algorithms to map like object world collisions, like a ball rolling into another ball. It's just like science, straight science uh, plugged into the super collider, but it ends up sounding like the most incredible noise or drone music you could imagine. But all they're doing is, is mapping potential collisions following the laws of gravity. 
I wonder where you would locate this in the uh, interlocution between these two very disparate Well, that, that, that's the thing. That, uh, I mean, I'm just going to go like, bang. That's the kind of art as insight, yeah. you know what I mean? That, that sound effect, if it's done right, it can be an insight into all that rest of the stuff that's so hard as a knowledge. It, it's only special and specialized for the physicist, right? But the aesthetic audio experience of it is a kind of insight into that world that like anyone could access and maybe can give them an insight about this complex sort of like theoretical physics. Cool. Thank you. Any other questions? <laughs> Did you use the term um, science of surface? You did? Yes. Well, how then do you relate your division over art and science within that phrase? Pardon me? How do, how do you relate then your division over science and art again? Um, when you're using that phrase. Okay, so my, my, my sort of like introduction of this, this, this idea comes with like thinking of how sort of like the proposition of abstraction or abstract art in early 20th century really wasn't abstract enough and, and didn't really like, like the problem with, the, problem with the, the, the theory of abstract art was that it actually wasn't abstract enough because in the name of breaking away from uh, representational art, it's sort of like it brought with it another form of representation, which was the, 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 the material base. So, so most of the discourse of the early 20th century abstraction is about how we have to negate representation and deal with the truth of the material and paint as a real physical matter and canvas as a physical matter. And I think, and I think that betrayed the sort of like more abstract aspect of what this move from representation to abstraction could have entailed and the kind of connection this, this abstraction could have with basically how the, 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 the way abstract, abstraction works itself in sciences, in mathematics, in like, in like physics. So by going to the, the idea of surface, you sort of like taking away the idea of abstraction away from material basis and like, you know what I mean? The, paint and the canvas and sort of like talking about like this this particular like zero zero depth area in which of course it always rests on a material support material right like a photograph or a painting right but itself could be conceptually separated from the basis and looked at basically as this sort of like membrane between our cognitive sensual capabilities, right? And then the capabilities of that, of that built or natural surface to sort of like connect to us or connect to the viewer. So that, that's the, and then science of surface, sort of like is basically truly understanding how this, this in, in interfacing happens and how you can kind of like how you can utilize it and maximize its use for whatever it is that you want to do. Pardon me? Aren't you already over in the world of science by using... I, I understand we 
we're coming from because we're not again that absolute division between art and science is necessary but the indeterminate is what you're trying to give art alone which is you're saying that science is totally empiric which is not right because of the necessi necessary leap of faith that you do in science like Chaitin, etc., Chaitin is, is saying that, you know, that it's very indeterminate. Well, you mean it's, you, you mean it's res the, the results of scientific inquiries are contingent, right? Is that what you mean by, by, by calling it indeterminate? Because uh, I don't know any scientists who enter the, enter, the, enter, the, enter the lab and just say, let's just see what's going to happen. Like, you, you, the science goes in with a plan, right? And then, of course, they're open to sort of like unexpected results. And they would try to like design an experiment from so many different ways to try to see if, if they can find a way to challenge their own hypothetical assumption in the beginning, right? That's usually, I mean, it's not, it's not that, I, I, like, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think science is that indeterminate. Whereas, whereas When scientists ask for artists to come in? Yeah, they've just advertised to architects and it's an embellishment that it's not really because it's a very artistic concept, Maybe when they're working with artists, they're playful, but <laughs> their own endeavor is not playful. Okay. And in fact, that's why, that's why in 1916, when Philip set up those, uh, those like labs to work with artists, all, all of the sort of like early, early conceptual and minimalist artists, they all got excited and went and made art with, with Phillips. But Robert Smithson said, this is just a game and I would refuse to play this game because this is not a true engagement of art and science. Yeah. This is just some like thing so, um, corporations are doing for PR. It's a and, PR exercise. Yeah, it's a PR exercise. Okay, then we've got a question in the middle here. Yeah, in the middle and then Deb had one and then someone up the back. Okay. Hi, Mark. I was just thinking of um, the Greenberg example and kind of extrapolating the political as well. And that idea that art in an Adornian sense is kind of this highbrow stuff because when the revolution happens, I guess that's why then art needs to be complex because there's a revolution that never happens. And am I correct in asking that um, you're kind of relating then like a, we need to a Benedict Singleton kind of focus on design, focus taking the surface extremely seriously and getting rid of this theological view that someday the revolution will happen because that puts art on a much more long-term, rather than waiting for the big event, like architecture is for the long-term. I'm just wondering if that's... And I'm thinking as well, um, when you talk of like, if you think politically about change outside of the schemes of what radical leftism or neoliberalism can do and have a much more abductive navigational approach to the future, then art is a lot more about taking the long game. Well, uh, like, I, like to bring the conversation back to like the, the, the machine side, right? And your metaphor, which we were talking about earlier, like machines as our children, right? Mm. 
they're even more caught up in sense perception than we are, you know what I mean? So in a way, this sort of like going back to the surface is actually sort of like, is like teaching the child to swim. It's like we've created these machines and so far they're not able to sort of like, they're not able to form original thoughts. They're sort of like on their way to somehow do more. And they really are like, I just, I just did an exhibition sort of like uh, using the Google re reverse image, image search, right? And I kind of like use that as a metaphor for like the, the early, early technology of how machines would view art. So basically the, the experiment was like I asked a big group of artists to, to submit works of art, like documentation or if they're photo photographers. And then we ran these through like reverse image search. And then artists picked what they thought, oh, that's cool. Oh, that's kind of like get, Google's getting it, right? And then we showed a selection of those as a way of putting the art, the, the, the art in conversation with the machine. And, and even at that level, the machines are way more sort of like limited to the, to the surface than we are, right? So really, this, this sort of like, this sort of downgrading art to this is really like about, about making, it, making it accessible and kind of like creating the precondition for what it takes for them to kind of like partake further into this, into this realm. I don't know if I, if, I, if I answer your question or not, but I think, but I think it's, like, it's like, it's the other way around. It's like, um, it's like rather, than, rather than going inside and, and, like you said, like isolating yourself, you actually should go out and take over the Hollywood, take over the field of like popular culture. And, and yeah, so, so that, that, that's why I think that that strategy is completely like a dead end. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant um, um, in the sense of democratizing art and forcing it to kicking and screaming into the 21st century, I guess. And I was thinking about the normative indeterminacy. Um, I think the indeterminacy you were describing is normative. It's not about scientific, the epistemic limits, right? It's about just today's relativist new age normative indeterminacy, I guess. I was just... Which according to Suhail Malik, it's a mask. Mask of how global, a global cosmopolitan elite controls the culture of the museums and galleries, but behind a mask of indeterminacy and behind a mask of celebrating difference. So, so by, by saying there's no criteria, there's actually one criteria, which is sort of like, don't look at me. This is everything, I, I, I collect everything. I collect ACT UP, work by ACT UP artists from 80s, and I collect like, I don't know, like nude paintings of women who are problematic, and they can all exist together in this, in this, in this beautiful world of museum, which I control and own. Thanks. I've got a question over here. But, but, but also like realize that like these conversations are happening on, on the edges of the art world, because art world, not really interested in this conversation, is usually media theory, people involved, like, like you guys, with like experiments that have to do with technology, with like cognition, and this is like an amazing space that, that these other departments, like uh, what, what was your department, Amy? It's called exper um, your program at the University of... Center for Experimental... Yeah, Experimental Humanities. So, so these fringes are really interested in these discussions, but really these are like, these should be center arguments in the art, in, in, the, in, the, in the fine art departments, but they're not. So we sort of like, we, we sort of like colonize media theory, and we go around and, and talk, like try to like get philosophers interested in anybody but those people. But, but, the, but the argument is kind of like slowly seeping in. So I guess there and then the, and then the yeah.
Hi, uh, thanks for your talk. Um, I'm going to ask what seems like a sort of very humanist question, even though I totally agree with you actually from a, that art, and I think there's a lot of art that's happening that is actually a collaborative making process between humans and machines. Um, but maybe I'm misinterpreting, but from a lot of what you're talking about in terms of art sort of providing insight, and that's insight to kinds of knowledge, and that being separate somehow from the scientific process, it seems a little bit like art needs to, in a way, be in the service of science in order to provide access to knowledge. And so I guess my question is, like, what happens to poetry? <laughs> um, and, I mean, Lewis Mumford, who was a humanist, specifically was writing a lot of time, not against machines, but he was worried about losing poetry, about losing the humanist touch in art because of the influence of machines on society. Um, so I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it is that art needs to service a particular kind of scientific knowledge. I, it, it always comes across that way. It always comes across as some kind of like a Marxian base and superstructure, right? Like there's science in the base that's more important, and then art is on top of it. But it really like somehow, I guess something in, in, in the way that, that my discussion is, is brought up that has to change to not mm -hmm. cause this kind of like prioritization of science to take place. Because I really don't, I really don't, think, I don't, I really don't think it's that way because, the, because both sides of this divide, I mean, I, mean, I, can, I could have just like talked about like Wilfred Sellers because a lot of these ideas, I just didn't want to like complicate, complicate the, the presentation by bringing Sellers into picture, but like, but like, you can't. You cannot like the 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 world of appearances, which is sort of like originally appeared to humans, and then now we can we can see how this world of appearances is shared between humans and machines, right? Is is the only way the scientific knowledge can make sense to humans and machines? So so in a way, none of you can't prioritize science over this. You just can't because at the end of the day, it's only through the to the eyes of the human or the eyes of the human machine, that any of this scientific knowledge or scientific endeavor can be useful or make sense. But also there's the ethical side of it, right? Without the human insight, right, the science cannot really have any kind of like, any kind of ethics of its own because science is a view from nowhere. It's almost like you can logically like convince yourself to commit crimes if you want, if scientifically it makes sense, right? So you need the human side to kind of like compensate and keep the two in balance. It's together that they form this stereoscopic image. The problem is that our arts and humanities have only been seeing the world with their eye, and our, our scientific side has been only seeing the world with, with, the, with the other eye, right? In the, in the, in the perfect situation, and, and you, you heard the example because it's a perfect example, uh, you have science coming up with, say, like antibiotics, right? But the human ethics translate into politics, make a kind of health policy that will make that available to everyone through like universal healthcare. And the bad side of it is that you have incredible advancement in say space travel, but it's only available to super rich and, and then people don't even have like subway to travel to their family's home, right? So that's why the two sides need each other. The science side without that side is going to be a hor horrific life and horrific like world. Um, 
I spend a lot of time working with scientists and particularly in the area of big data. Big data has changed science intrinsically and it's actually um, much more experimental than you've characterised it today. Um, although I take your point that there's a, I guess, a teleological historical trajectory of science um, and history and philosophy of science that um, would, would, I guess, concur with a lot of your observations, that it's um, epistemically oriented and, and so on, and instrumentalist and positivist and empirical and so on. Um, and many scientists buy into that. Um, but I just wanted to make an observation of your talk because I think at the end you declared that you came down on the side of art, that you were you know, championing the side of art in this division that you've proposed between art and science, uh, which is a division I believe is, if, if it's even tenable, it's inherently unstable as a, a kind of conceptualisation of, of those two practices. Um, I actually disagree with you. I think you're coming down on the side of science because I think science is binary in its contemporary formation. And so the, the kind of rigorous binary that you've applied between art and science in and of itself is definitionally something that's produced through the machine cultures of the algorithm. And so I, I find I'm now struggling with the form of your talk, which is, of course, on the human side. Um, so I'm, I'm grappling with this kind of really bizarre internal conundrum between the, the kind of rigour of your binary propositions um, proposed against the idea that you're claiming some kind of... Um, I wouldn't call it a higher moral ground, but some kind of additional ground for the side of art, when in fact I think what you're doing would, would be a, a great argument from the position of the machine. And I would love to see a machine write your paper and see what, how it came out differently. M machines did write that paper. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it! <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it, like, one way to respond to you is to say, oh, she caught me. My camouflage was, like, removed. Hmm. And which could actually be kind of true because at the at like like in a normal in a normal world of humanities I'll be considered a pro science person you you're absolutely right but but within 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 the circle of people that that we've been developing these ideas I consider myself on the side of art because there are people who are way more like declaring their their allegiance to the science side than I do but but I, I I really, I really agree with you from the, like the, the beginning of your, 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 your question or comment that like big data or whatever you want to call it, this kind of collection of information and sort of like algorithmic way of accessing it is changing the nature of science. But, but I, I really, I really like if, if, if you read Sellers, Sellers' mode of operation of science already, already includes the way big data, big data operates. And that's why uh, I, I think that the, the return to sellers by philosophers is actually the result of this, this new way of actually scientists are the ones who are sort of like working and, and getting out of their sort of like epistemic limits and becoming more open-minded as a result of computation. But, but true, the true philosophy of science, a good philosophy of science always included like this kind of like openness that you're talking about that big data is bringing to sciences. And, and that's why we love yeah. sellers. And I was going to mention feminist science as well, which of course is a, a kind of major intervention in, in those assumptions about what science is and can be and can do. Yeah. I, I, I think the same... Yeah, some... oh, sorry. No, go ahead. 
Yeah, go ahead. Okay, yeah. sorry. Um, it's just a follow-on in a sense that Deb was asking about science, and I suppose I'll ask about art. Uh, I was quite interested that you mentioned Greenberg as your definition or turning point of you know, where you're, you're redressing what art could or perhaps should be. Um, as someone who works in the 19th century and early 20th century, if you started, you know, first within the history of art, if you start with someone like Alex Kitson or any other art historian who's looking at different histories of what popular art could have been, we can ignore Greenberg altogether and therefore the whole debate or kind of negative spin on what art is or was is removed because he isn't that important actually to contemporary debates in art history. Secondly, if you begin perhaps with someone like as simple as Benjamin talking about the reproduced image, talking about you know the surgeon comparing to the painter, the surgeon goes into the body through the photographic image. Yeah. So already your your argument about art and perhaps um, the separate the kind of division that's built up through your argument and using Greenberg, you could in a sense, avoid, or it doesn't have to be so strictly, uh, in a sense, binary, the way I, I would say binary. I agree, except, except because, because I, I like to emphasize, emphasize abstraction, I think it's important to go to the moment in which there was, a, there was a possibility to understand abstraction in its full capacity, and it wasn't. And that's so because that's you why, began with algorithms. That's, pardon me? It's, it, that's why you began with algorithms. Yeah, yeah. totally. And, and, okay. and also, like, the, the, this, this question of abstraction is sort of, like, it's very, like, timely because in, 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 the, in the financial world, really, that's what you're dealing with, you know? And that's what most people don't understand about, like, how, how finance capital operates. It's like the, it's, the, it's, it's like, it's, it's an abstraction engine. And then... And then on the on the level of philosophy, there's like there's like a you're dealing again with, with abstraction. And then and then art was on on this on this concept from like early 20th century, but it didn't really fully develop it into sort of like how how it can be utilized. So that's why that's why I go back to abstraction and I go back to Greenberg because it was that moment. Otherwise, you're absolutely right. Yeah, you had a question. Uh, thanks for your time and um, for the talk, Mo. Um, I'm just wondering if you could um, give me your thoughts on uh, a consideration of art that might not have function in it. Um, particularly here, I'm thinking of Adorno. If art could have any function at all, it would be to have no function. And also, by, uh, with that consideration, uh, thinking around your s suggestion, as I interpret it, as function of knowledge for us, if that perhaps is a continuation of Heidegger's enslaving of technology as he outlines in Question Concerning Technology. Okay, so what the first part? Uh, the, 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 history of, the history of 20th century art shows actually how the art world is totally able to make the, 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 the uselessness of art useful through sort of like the marketplace, right? So really that, that Adorno option is no longer available. That Adorno option really started to disappear with the rise of, rise of sort of like the, the cheap money in early 2000 and you could feel it in the art world. It was like a lot of practices that could still be marginalized, that could still be considered non-market, was all brought into market because of so much money and interest went into art, right? So basically, it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, but it, it's a beautiful idea, but it's kind of like beautiful like an analog camera. 
It just sounds like a vintage idea, but it's already like, in fact, in fact, it's useful art. It's kind of like opinionated art. It's art that has a that has a criteria, comes from a place that, that that is useless because the market doesn't like it and doesn't know how to. Or the art world system, which is not. I don't want to reduce it to just the market. Market is just like one element has no use for it. And also other forms of art creativity that basically are still deemed like popular, like science fiction or like poetry or other forms of creativity that, that I really think we should rework back into art because this exclusivity of visual arts is really big. That's why I try to spend a lot of the paper time on it, right? Because that is a really big problem and it's just like it goes back to the history of how art was conceived in the Western, with Western philosophy because seeing was deemed like equal or conflated with knowing. You, can, you even say, I see, right? Which is like uh, Sort of like an idiom for understanding, right? So th th this this is what needs to get entangled, so we can talk more about all of them as art. And I think that that's one way of sort of like maybe, but but all those things are useful, you know. None of them are, are useless. Poetry is useful, like science fiction useful. I mean, in the sense, right? Unless they're very very experimental. I just want to ask you, what do you think? about transdisciplinarity as a bridge between our art and science? If, 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 if such a thing can even kind of like happen in, in a right balance, right? It has to be like, it has to be clear about like what is the artist doing in that endeavor? And what are they gonna get out of it? And wh what are they gonna contribute? Because again, it cannot become some sort of a PR for either side that I'm working with science or I'm working with, or I'm working with art, right? And it has to be a clear sort of like, clear like criteria for how the art is gonna enter that, that transdisciplinary and how their creative resources are going to be sort of like useful to the scientist side and it's not just like, oh look, they can make, they're going to make beautiful images of some scientific process. And I, and I, th I think it's possible because, because scientists, you know, at the level of, you know, this is, this, this is the part that I may, may get accused of what you were saying. At the level of model making, they lack imagination. So at the level of creating scientific models, at the, at the level of sort of like bringing multi-dimensionality of information into something that can be even transmitted to a fellow scientist, they lack imagination. And that's where maybe artists can be sort of like transdisciplinary and help. But, but there might be more other things that artists can do. But you know what I mean? Again, like the, the notion of creativity could be like you just, you know, an entrepreneur could be creative and go into sciences and do transdisciplinary work. Why should it be like a visual artist? Or like somebody we think of artists, you know what I mean? Wasn't like Lovelace already like a poet and a programmer, which sort of like began this whole revolution of writing software? So that was already transdisciplinary, right? A poet writing programming for someone who couldn't even make the machines because of the limitations of, of their knowledge of math and the materials available to make machines. Transjunctions is actually part of a, a three-part exploration of imagination, media aesthetics and art curation jointly executed by the School of Communication and Creative Arts at Deakin University, the University of New South Wales, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image and Pause Festival and they're all happening today. Additional to this talk, Ben Woodward 
has today delivered a workshop imagining and creating new worlds. And following this talk, there is an exhibition created by Renata Lemos Mariah on which a creative field of aesthetic immersion opens the door to new spaces of perception. So please join us to further explore the themes discussed today um, at this pop-up exhibition at the Pause Festival Tech Bar at Beer Deluxe, which is right next door from 9 p.m. tonight. Um, in closing, I'd like to thank Deakin University and Pause Festival who have co-presented this talk with the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. In particular, thanks um, to Renata lemos Morai from Deakin University, uh, Tim Bright and volunteers from Pause Festival and the behind-the-scenes handiwork of the ACME team, Jenny, who's helped us on the door today, and Jay up there in the bio box. Uh, thank you very much for all your time and thanks, everybody. You have been listening to an ACME podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to ACME Channel and the ACME website.